This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. Colorado is choosing its next governor, and at a critical time, the state is growing, booming even, and the candidates have very different visions of how to invest in the future, in schools, transportation, health care. We are getting these candidates on the record before the June primaries, which are open to more voters than ever before. Today, we meet Democrat Carrie Kennedy. I caught up with her after the first televised debate of the campaign. She was with her husband and three sisters deciding where to go for dinner. Anyone want to share a Carrie Kennedy story from growing up? Kennedy's younger sister, actually a stepsister, Kimberly Jackson, volunteered. I was a junior in high school. Carrie was a senior. And our parents were discussing allowances. And my father had determined that I didn't need one because I had a job. And I had Carrie standing there arguing that What I did with my free time, if it happened to earn me extra money, didn't negate my need for an allowance from the parents. (laughs) Now, it's not her parents she makes arguments in front of, but voters. The night's debate may have been more nerve-wracking for Kennedy's family watching in the audience than for the candidate herself. It was substantive. We were able to talk about our priorities and our vision for the state. So I'm pleased and I'm going to go have a margarita with my sisters. Kennedy served one term as state treasurer. She was unseated in 2010 by the current treasurer, Republican Walker Stapleton, who's also running for governor. Kennedy then served as Denver's chief financial officer and deputy mayor under Michael Hancock. And Carrie Kennedy, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. What is the single biggest problem facing Colorado and how do you propose to solve it? So I think we're all really proud of Colorado. Uh, We're an innovative and forward-looking state. We're a model for the rest of the country in many ways. We've built what is now the number one ranked economy in the country. And I think the biggest challenge facing us is that the investments that we're making in education, don't match that progress. And the investments we're making in our infrastructure to support um, a rapidly growing population, we're all feeling the impacts of growth and the impacts on our state's environment. So it's making sure that as our economy and our population grows, um, that we're making those investments that support prosperity for everyone. And what do you think is the culprit? What is the reason that investments, as you say, don't keep up with the growth? Well, it just doesn't make sense that we have the top-ranked economy in the country and our investment in education ranks at the bottom among states. We've been cutting school budgets for nearly three decades here in Colorado ever since. An amendment was adopted here called the Tabor Amendment that's forced us to cut uh, our Uh, education budgets. We have half the school districts in the state of Colorado today now down to a four-day school week, Ryan. It doesn't make any sense for a state as strong as Colorado. You've said that Tabor, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, prevents the state from keeping up with growth, and you've pledged to lead a bipartisan coalition to pass permanent Tabor changes. Uh, But as the current governor told me just the other day, quoting him, In many parts of Colorado, Tabor is still very popular. Uh, Hickenlooper called it a battle cry for conservatives. So I want to imagine that your governor, Kerry Kennedy, you're at the table with leaders from the House and Senate, and maybe those are led by the opposite party, the other party. What's your leverage? Yeah, so the good news, Ryan, is we really have bipartisan support for permanent Tabor reform in Colorado. Really? Wouldn't it have happened by now? Well, nearly every local government in the state has already 
uh, pass tabor reform because they see at the local level the impacts on their fire districts, uh, on their counties, their cities. And we have Republican and Democratic legislators who will stand side by side going to the statewide ballot to say, as our state keeps up with growth, our investment in education, our investment in infrastructure needs to keep up as well. So you see this as a referred measure from the legislature that would go to the ballot because this would need taxpayer approval. I have to say, I've sat across from now three different governors who have tried to take on changes to Tabor. Uh, They've had mixed success in so doing. What makes you think that you'll do this any differently? So we've only passed two measures at the statewide ballot uh, that have um, avoided even deeper cuts that Tabor would have required to our schools, to our infrastructure over the last 25 years. Both of those measures I helped develop and put on the ballot and build the coalitions to pass them. I believe we have the bipartisan support today at the state and local level. People come together. They recognize that we can keep Colorado's taxes low. We want low taxes. It helps keep Colorado affordable. It helps keep businesses competitive in our state. But as our economy grows, we need to benefit our schools, our infrastructure investment needs to benefit from that growth in our economy. So it sounds like you don't have a lot of convincing to do in your mind. You think the support is there. Uh, You talked about your role in previous Tabor changes. I want to talk about your role in another budgetary measure that is in the state constitution. Amendment 23 has to do with K-12 through education funding. Of course, there were teacher walkouts in Colorado last week, a sea of red t-shirts around the state capitol, educators demanding that the state meet its obligations to schools. And you did indeed lead the campaign for Amendment 23 in 2000, which required lawmakers to increase education spending each year. Then the recession hit, and the legislature essentially found a way around that. With so many other competing provisions in the Colorado Constitution, including Tabor, was Amendment 23 a false promise? So education needs to be Colorado's top priority. People of this state want us to have among the best public education system in the country, one that matches the great strength of this state's economy. And, and, and the tying... teachers are out are out marching and they're out protesting because our investment in education has fallen so low that they can't afford to work here. They can't afford to teach, and we're losing great teachers. They're leaving the profession. They're leaving the state. We want that pipeline of talent. We want Colorado to be the place that the best teachers want to be here working with our kids. And I think we all know we can do better. So that would have been the argument you made, I'm assuming, in 2000 when Amendment 23 passed. Was it unwise to put that in the state constitution? So Tabor was forcing cuts in education. And I wrote Amendment 23 to stop those cuts. And here we are 20 years later with teachers protesting on the steps of the Capitol because once again, Tabor has forced cuts in our education budget for decades, leaving students in our state without the opportunities, without the support, without the resources to be able, we want our kids to be competitive for the jobs that we're bringing here. We're building a knowledge-based economy here in Colorado, and we want our kids to get the education that prepares them for it. And so in hindsight, uh, just briefly, do you think it was right to put Amendment 23 in the state constitution, given that you sit here now in a very similar situation that you were trying to avoid years ago. I don't think the Constitution's the right place to make fiscal policy, but Tabor's what started that, and Amendment 23 was a countermeasure. Now, there are some who would say Tabor 
started some of the economic growth we're seeing, that when money is in the hands of taxpayers, not government, that's how growth happens. What would you say to people who stand by Tabor and say, no, I don't want the state to have more of my money? Oh, I think people see businesses in Colorado doing well, and having a competitive tax structure is important to that success. But what's holding us back, Ryan, is that we're not providing the educated workforce to support the growth in the businesses that are here. A lot of companies in Colorado, when they go to fill their high-skilled, high-paying jobs, they're recruiting from outside of Colorado. I want them recruiting from Pueblo and Trinidad and Grand Junction. We want our kids growing up here in Colorado to be competitive for those jobs. And you see that as a function of education, as a function of Tabor and changes you'd like to make to it. Uh, You mentioned transportation as a priority as well. It is possible that there will be a ballot measure at this election sponsored by many in the business community to raise money for transportation. Is it something you'd vote for? I would support it. You know, we're all feeling the impacts of growth. Uh, You know, every working parent is sitting in traffic, worried that they're not going to get home to be able to have dinner with their kids. So we have to make the investments in our transportation infrastructure. It includes improvements to our highways and and, uh, upgrading the condition of our rural roads. But it's also investing in transit and in mobility because we can't widen our way out of traffic. But I'm encouraged that folks are looking at putting a proposal on the ballot, and I would support additional resources for transportation. Okay. I want to go back to education. You've been endorsed by the state's largest teachers union and the state chapter of the American Federation of Teachers. How would you say your education plan stands out from the rest of the democratic field? I mean, if education is a driving issue for a voter, why would they choose you? Well, I think improving our our school starts with supporting our teachers. They're in the classroom working with our kids, and they need the support and the tools and the resources to be able to inspire a love of learning for our all of their kids. I don't imagine and, any of the other Democrats in the race would disagree with what you just said. <laughs> How do you differentiate yourself? Well, you know, there's. Uh, I'm concerned with the direction of education in Colorado. I'm concerned we're focused too much on high-stakes testing that we've been narrowing curriculums in our classrooms rather than expanding opportunities for kids, that we've been blaming our teachers rather than giving our teachers the support and the resources and the tools to support the learning in their students. So under Kerry Kennedy for governor, even though this is a state with local control, you would like to see less high stakes testing? I want all of our kids to develop higher level thinking skills, um, problem solving, creative thinking, working together. Everything shouldn't be based on the outcome of one test. Education is bigger than that. Some may see the teachers union endorsement as a liability. Uh, Membership in unions has been dropping over the years. And there's a rift in the Democratic Party, it would seem, over how to make schools better. How much competition and choice should play a role? I'll note at the State Assembly, an education reform group was told to take the word Democrat out of its name. And the head of the group apparently was booed. Were were the Democrats right to boo? So, Ryan, we need to listen to our teachers. And our teachers are telling us that they don't have... 
the support statewide to su- to help all of their children reach the standards that we've set for them. Not even half the kids in this state are reaching those standards. And teachers, we need to listen to our teachers because they know the support that their students need. And they're concerned that the direction the education reform movement has taken us towards high-stakes testing and towards narrowing curriculums, and they want to see it changed. Do you think they should have booed? Um, No, I mean, I think you should respect whoever's speaking at the microphone, but people were expressing an opinion and and a real concern about the direction of education in our state. And Colorado can have the best public education system in the country. We are an innovative and forward-looking state. That's the model that we want in our education system. And we want to support all of our kids in giving them that, whether they're growing up in Arvada or Alamosa. One of your opponents in this Democratic primary is a former educator, Mike Johnston. He is associated with the reform group that was told to take Democrat out of its name. But I actually want to bring Johnston up in another context, uh, and that's health care. Your plan differs from his. You'd like to see a statewide public option for health insurance. Coloradans could either buy into Medicaid or into the plan uh, that state employees have uh, under your vision. Johnston last week on this show explained that he'd only offer a public option in some places where people are spending more than 10 percent of their income on coverage. Because what we want to do is we want to provide choice in all the parts of the state where people don't have choice, which is what's driving up prices. What you don't want to do is destabilize the markets that are working effectively. And so we've offered as a public option to buy into Medicaid in any places where the plans are currently unaffordable, which is do like the Western Do you think a statewide slope. plan would be destabilizing? I, I do think it would be. Okay. What you would see is a lot of private health care providers would probably leave the state. We'd have less choice. We'd have higher prices. Kerry Kennedy, if there's a statewide public option, is that destabilizing for current insurers? No, absolutely not. It expands choice in the market, and we are able to pass savings on to everyone in the state of Colorado who right now can't afford their health care. There are a lot of families, Ryan, in Colorado that when you add up their premiums and their out-of-pocket expenses and their pharmaceutical costs, they're paying more than $2,000 a month. I've even heard of families paying more than $3,000 a month. They simply can't afford it. And we can pass savings along to folks who need it by offering anyone in the state the opportunity to purchase Medicaid as a health insurance plan. We can offer it for less than what's being offered right now in the private market. And that won't be a destabilizing force, though. No, it'll put competitive pressure. It will increase competition. Uh, It'll put competitive pressure out in the market for all providers to contain their costs um, and we've seen escalating costs in health care. And I think we need uh, a public option so that people don't necessarily have to be held uh, to these very high, fast-rising costs that we're seeing in the private sector, uh, that they're able to work uh, and purchase a public health insurance option for less. Your energy plan, Kerry Kennedy, would double the state's renewable energy standard from 30 to 60 percent. You've said you support a state appeals court decision that rules for oil and gas development must be subject to the protection of public health, safety and welfare, including protection of the environment and wildlife resources. That case is headed to the state Supreme Court. What does it mean practically to you if a greater emphasis is placed on public health? What would it mean on the ground for homeowners and mineral owners. So first of all, Ryan, we need to 
as a state lead in addressing climate change. We need to move to clean, renewable sources of energy. It is growing our state's economy. It's where we're seeing the fastest job growth. Uh, and it's important for us to reduce our emissions here as a state and do our part. Um, in oil and gas development, Energy is an important industry in Colorado. We're one of the largest oil and gas producers in the nation. We need to make sure we're developing those resources responsibly. And that means putting public health and safety as our priority in regulating that industry. What change would that mean to you? Well, right now you see communities where uh, energy companies are coming in and, and they want to drill right next to a school. They want to drill right next to a playground. Colorado those increased setbacks for those. You would increase those setbacks further, do you think? For for schools, for uh, community uh, resources where you've got um, neighborhoods, uh, they need to have a voice. They need to have a say in what's happening in their own jurisdiction, and they need to have the authority to protect water quality, air quality, uh, and protect their communities. If that meant that someone who owns the mineral rights beneath that land wasn't able to access them, do you think the state should compensate the mineral rights owners? So here's where technology is really helping us. New technologies give the industry the ability to change the location of where they drill and still be able to access minerals um, that are that are uh, quite a distance away. You don't so think this would be a taking? We can't take away the ability to access those resources, but technology gives the industry um, much more flexibility so that we can protect public health, safety, and welfare and still develop the resources. And you want that control at the local level? Is that where you want the power for these setbacks, or would you like a statewide setback? The requirement to protect public health and safety needs to be at the state and the local level. And I think local jurisdictions should have the authority um, to make decisions around what's happening in their communities, particularly where it's close to schools and residential neighborhoods. To guns. Uh, and I want to remind people that you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Morner. We are speaking with the candidates for governor. Today, it's Democrat Kerry Kennedy. And on guns, you've said you'd ban military-style assault weapons. That includes the AR-15, one of the most popular recreational guns in the country, often, though, involved in mass shootings. Would you just ban sales of new ones? Would it also mean taking those guns out of the hands of people who already have them? Yeah. So, Ryan, you know, as a mom, I have the same reaction as every parent, every grandparent in this country when we see the headlines about a school shooting of of sheer terror um, and horror for what those families are going through. We shouldn't have to live with that fear. The vast majority of gun owners in our state and in our country are law-abiding citizens who use their guns for law-abiding purposes. And who may own AR-15s. But for the narrow, the narrow band of people who intend to do harm uh, to as many people as possible in as short a pe- uh, period of time as possible, we absolutely need to ban these weapons of war. They were never intended to be used uh, on our streets, in our communities, and it just creates too much risk that folks who want to do harm can get a hold of those weapons. And what about those who already have them? Well, I think we can talk about that. Um, we need to make sure that they're safely protected, they're safely stored, that people who would intend to do harm aren't able to get their hands on those weapons. Would you take AR-15s, for example, out of someone's hands who already owns one today? 
I would ban these military-style weapons. Uh, going we'd have forward to ta- or retroactively? Going forward, and we'd have to talk about... Uh, you know what how we how we license or permit people who have them today okay earlier this year a detective who was on mayor michael hancock's security detail accused him of sexually harassing her she provided suggestive texts that he'd sent in 2012 the mayor apologized and back then the detective received a $75,000 settlement in another harassment matter uh, the city also paid hefty legal fees in connection with these cases And it's come out that the city attorney was aware of the texts back then. You were Denver's chief financial officer and deputy mayor. How much did you know about what was going on? Yeah, so Ryan, I'm saddened by uh, the mayor's conduct. It was clearly inappropriate, uh, the text that he sent. And I'm glad that he's publicly apologized. He has owned uh, his conduct and his behavior. I was not aware of any of this uh, at the time. I was the chief financial officer for the city and one of the fastest growing uh, cities in the country. And we were uh, running an awful lot of initiatives to manage growth in our city and make the investments in our libraries and our uh, community uh, centers, our neighborhoods. And uh, the city attorney's office handled those person matters I did not. Is it something in hindsight you wish you uh, could have known, paid closer attention to, or do you see that it was not part of your role at that time? You know, there are a lot of personnel issues in a big organization like city government. Um, I did not uh, get involved in any of those individual cases. It wouldn't be appropriate. That's the role for the attorneys. You think that Mayor Hancock should keep his job? I think that Mayor Hancock's uh, Behavior in this was inappropriate. Um, I struggle with this question. Um, I think it's probably going too far to ask him to to resign. Um, But again, I I don't think his conduct was appropriate. Finally, you and Democrat Donna Lynn are the only women in this race. Uh, Republican Cynthia Kaufman failed to win enough votes at the recent state assembly. Colorado's never had a female governor, even though the state has historically had Uh, more women in its legislature than many other states, uh, was early in giving women the vote. Have you given any thought to why there hasn't been a female governor? Yeah, you know, most people don't uh, don't believe it. Uh, they can't believe a state as progressive as Colorado hasn't had uh, a woman governor yet, 140 years of statehood. Um, and uh, I am inspired by the excitement um, and the momentum I see around the state Uh, to promote women into positions of leadership, not just in politics, not just in the public sector and elected office, um, but in the roles that they play in their communities at school and and in the workplace and on more corporate boards. It's exciting to see the women's movement this year. And uh, I think this is the year we're going to get it done. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Ryan. Democrat Carrie Kennedy, who's running for governor. We're interviewing all the major party candidates before the primaries. And later this week, we're scheduled to speak with Republican Doug Robinson. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. (music) 
After the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, Florida passed a red flag gun law. It allows a judge to keep firearms out of the hands of people who may be a risk to themselves or others. Well, a similar bill is being introduced today in Colorado. Representative Alec Garnett, a Denver Democrat, is sponsoring this legislation, which he says has bipartisan support. We spoke earlier this morning before his press conference to announce the bill. And Representative, welcome to the program. Hey, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. So these are known officially as extreme risk protection orders. Let's say I have a friend or family member or that I'm a cop and I'm worried someone might pose a threat. I don't think they should have a firearm. What happens next? You would go and petition the court and explain through an affidavit why you were concerned that uh, this individual poses a significant threat against themselves or someone else, and the court would determine whether or not they should issue a temporary extreme risk protection order that would allow law enforcement to step in uh, the next day and intervene to make sure that the crisis doesn't escalate into a tragedy. That is to say that law enforcement would remove any guns in that person's possession? Yeah, they would temporarily remove them, and then within seven days, the court would hold a full evidentiary hearing to determine whether or not those firearms should remain removed for up to six months. Yeah, it's 182 days, you say, in the bill. So this starts temporary, then there's a hearing for a full order. And does this also prevent that person from purchasing a firearm in that time? It does. It prevents them from purchasing, possessing and then they're required to turn over any firearms that they have. What do you think prevents abuse of this? You know, there are eight states that currently have this. Connecticut has had it since 1999. Uh, In Connecticut, the data shows that it's used on average about 50 times a year. In California, a state that is 10 times as big as Colorado, in 2016, it was used 80 times. This is not an order that is used lightly. This is something that's used in emergency situations, and it's actually been used in Connecticut more often to help prevent suicide. What about uh, how someone gets their firearm back? Yeah, so at the end of the order, however long it may be, the sheriff will make sure to go through and double-check that you're eligible to own a firearm, and then your firearms will be given back to you. And at that point, It's been documented in other states. What really has happened is that person who was in crisis was able to get mental health treatment, and then they were able to move forward, and the guns were given back. Who keeps the person's gun, and and where? Yeah, so we essentially, uh, you know, we want to avoid what happened in Nashville, where firearms were removed, but they were being held by a family member, and the family member gave them back to the shooter. Oh, this is the Waffle House shooting. So what we do is we allow law enforcement or a federally licensed firearms dealer to hold them. We have worked with law enforcement every step of the way uh, on this bill. And they have said, you know, if they have storage issues, then they can find and work with people who are eligible to hold these firearms. But I I don't foresee that being a huge issue. and, And I don't think law enforcement does either. So after that temporary order, if a permanent one goes into place, 
for that period of six months. There's no sort of middle ground there. It couldn't be 60 days. It couldn't be 90 days. How did you arrive at that time period? There's a lot of due process for the person who's had a red flag raised against them. So that due process, I think, is twofold. The first one is the, the full hearing is within seven days. That's one of the fastest time frames in the country. And then after that, if the full continuing order is issued, the respondent or the person who's had their firearms removed has one chance to go before the court, petition the court, and say, this order should be terminated because I'm not a risk anymore. Do you know anyone who's lost their gun rights permanently? No. In all the stuff that I have read, I haven't encountered anyone who lost them permanently or lost them permanently and was super angry about it. Um, uh, So I just haven't seen it, but I can't say for sure that it hasn't happened. Do you have some fear that it could happen? No. I mean, this is really, you know, if somebody is severely mentally ill and and the treatment that they have been exposed to has not helped, then it could be something that's permanent. But I don't think, one, I don't think this is, this is going to be used that much uh, in terms of extreme situations. And then two, I don't see it as a way to uh, remove firearm, you know, someone's Second Amendment rights permanently. So it's my understanding that to introduce a bill this late in session, uh, less than two weeks left, you have to have support from leadership. D- does that mean that this bill has a fighting chance? Give us a sense of of who supports it and what you think the odds are, especially going into the Republican-controlled Senate? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I think first it's important to highlight that, you know, I started looking at this ERPA law before Parkland, and it was based on the tragic shooting in Douglas County where Deputy Sheriff Zachary Parrish III was killed in the line of duty on December 31st. And that was an incident where law enforcement knew the shooter to be a risk. And, you know, four deputies showed up um, that night. All four were shot. The family has asked us to name the bill, the Deputy Zachary Parrish, the Third Violence Protection Act. I think, you know, through the stakeholding, we put this bill in a really strong position. We've created a model that I believe other states will follow. We have bipartisan support in the House. We don't have a Senate sponsor yet, but we have kept them in the loop every step of the way. And I'm confident that through the positive reaction that Colorado voters and Colorado citizens show about the introduction of this bill today, that they're going to realize that this is to protect lives and save lives. And therefore, we can't wait another year. That is State Representative Alec Garnett, a Denver Democrat. Today, he's introducing a bipartisan bill to create a red flag gun law in Colorado. He says he has support from county sheriffs, chiefs of police and district attorneys across the state. The other day, demonstrators lined a busy street to rally for gun rights. Whether you're pro-firearm or not, you should be pro-freedom. So a, lot, a lot of people definitely feel that government may not represent their interests. And we've seen around the world every time when a government successfully disarms its population, they really stop listening to their people. That perspective isn't unusual in Colorado, but it's not normally associated with Boulder. Those voices were in fact recorded by the Boulder Daily Camera and posted to YouTube. They were protesting a proposed ban on so-called assault-style weapons in the city. Daily Camera reporter Alex Burness joins me. He's following the story. Welcome to the program, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Boulder wouldn't be the first city in Colorado with this sort of ban. Denver and Vail also have versions. And uh, Boulder has a reputation, of course, for being very liberal, jokingly referred to as the People's Republic. I I wonder if there's anything surprising to you about the opposition to this proposed gun ban there. No, um, I I guess I haven't been too surprised. First of all, I wasn't surprised to see uh, Boulder take this up. And I won't be surprised if they approve it. Um, the city likes to do a lot of kind of big thinking stuff that is um, outside the, uh, you know, what people would refer to as like fixing potholes uh, kind of kind of activity. Boulder, you know, just announced actually a few days after the um, uh, uh, hearing on the proposed assault weapons ban, um, a climate lawsuit against ExxonMobil and Suncor. So the city likes to do these kind of big things. Um particularly when it uh, believes in something and is, is seeing a uh, what it perceives to be a lack of meaningful action at the state and federal level. Um, but I also haven't been surprised by the opposition. Um, the Second Amendment rights are, of course, extremely sensitive in this country. And um, there are certainly a number of uh, uh, many uh, gun owners in Boulder who uh, protest what Boulder's considering, but there's also a lot of people outside of Boulder who we've heard from some of the folks uh, at the rally you mentioned a second ago. I don't know if, if um, the, the, this includes the people you, sh- uh, the, the clips you played, those people, but there are a lot of people from outside of Boulder who've weighed in on this. Um, the uh, local NRA issued a call to action um, that's made, you know, national news. And so uh, those who believe that this, this measure and other measures like it uh, infringe on Second Amendment rights, um, have really uh, banded together in opposition, and um, that's not surprising to me. Mm. And so this has obviously drawn a lot of attention outside of Boulder. It's interesting, I came across a story you wrote five years ago about a giveaway of high-capacity magazines in Boulder, and demand was so high they had to turn people away. Maybe that speaks to your lack of surprise at support for gun rights in and around the city. You know, the the message Boulder would be sending by banning so-called assault-style weapons is part of what appeals to some residents. Uh, Others who've spoken up talked about personal experiences, like at a Marathon City Council hearing earlier in April. Sarah Kelly said she's a teacher who lives in Boulder. Today, I'm speaking as someone who grew up with a father who loves hunting and in a home with guns. But I'm also speaking as a victim. Three and a half years ago, my 21-year-old brother was shot in the neck and killed with a gun that was legally owned. I would just like to bring to your attention today and remind everyone in this room and share from firsthand experience that the list of victims from shootings is far longer than the list of the deceased. She said that if the ban prevents one family going through what hers has, it'll be worth it. And yet other folks at this hearing argued it would be really ineffective to ban these kinds of weapons in the city. Adam Selby said he went to high school and college in Boulder. He now lives in Louisville. There's nothing that physically, unless you build a border around Boulder and seize people's cars and search and seize their their property, there's there's no way to keep and any stuff like this out of out of Boulder. And that's an issue partly because people who already own the banned weapons would be able to keep them if they register. Uh, there are other exemptions for people in law enforcement or shooting sports. And uh, the city attorney last week told us he's proposing another exemption for concealed carry permit holders. 
Uh, what do you know, Alex, about the similarities or differences between what Boulder's considering and what Vail and Denver have already done in terms of scope? I think that uh, Boulder has actually taken a lot of inspiration from those two cities and uh, that the city attorney, Tom Carr, has been uh, careful to craft the proposed measure, which I should note um, could change in any number of directions uh, when the council has a second hearing tomorrow. You mentioned, for example, that concealed carry permit holders uh, might be exempted, which would um, really change this, uh, w- w- what's been proposed in a big way. But uh, Tom Carr, I-, I know that before he released his original draft ahead of that uh, marathon hearing in April, he spoke with Vail, he spoke with Denver, he spoke with the uh, Giffords Law Center. Um, and I think the thinking there is drawing from, uh, inspiration from those two cities, Boulder feels um, emboldened because it's a home rule city. Um, and even though state law says uh, local governments uh, can't ban guns, um, the uh, on, on matters of local concern, a, a home rule city uh, is said to be um, equal to um, the state. Uh, and so Boulder feels like, as, as Denver and Vail surely did, um, that it, it would assert that it has a right to take on this kind of action because it's clearly, in Boulder's opinion, a matter of local concern. Though there are people who say Boulder's proposal itself would be illegal. Rocky Mountain gun owners has already threatened to sue. So in looking at Denver's measure, I know that Boulder has at least considered the fact that Denver's has held up under two court challenges so Mm -hmm. far. How much of this has to do with Parkland, do you think? I think it has a lot to do with Parkland. Um, The uh, proposal was actually introduced originally by Jill Adler-Grano. She's a councilwoman here in her first term, just a few months in. And um, in the days after Parkland, um, she said, uh, and I I think other council members felt basically like it's time. Um, Not that they wouldn't have supported this kind of action prior to Parkland, but um, as we've seen around the country, I think that um, that particular event uh, sort of changed the conversation in a lot of ways, and it, it certainly has changed it here in Boulder. So I don't know that this is something that um, if a council member had, had proposed it, you know, four years ago, say, that, um, that that there wouldn't have been support for it. I'm guessing uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's quite a liberal city and there would have been support. Um, but the timing of this particular measure, I think, has everything to do with Parkland. And Boulder City Attorney, who, who drafted the law at the direction of the council, has told us that the definition of assault-style weapon in his ban is narrower, for example, than Denver's. If you look at Vail and Denver's, and ours for that matter, it bans all semi-automatic rifles that have detachable magazines. And we've narrowed it a little bit by not only... Um, focusing on the detachable magazines, um, but adding the stability features that make it easier for someone shooting the weapon to kill a large number of people. And this proposed ban would mean that most people couldn't buy these kinds of weapons and accessories, but if they already owned them, they'd have to register with the city. Uh, It seems that reporting you uh, brought just this morning actually indicates that there may be an alternative proposal that might have a a different definition of what's banned. Is that right? Yeah. um, And we'll have to wait to see whether that gets any support tomorrow uh, when they have a second reading of this. Um, I I think the city council feels pretty united uh, about wanting to take on some kind of local gun control measure 
and uh, my assumption for a while had been that it would be some version roughly of what Tom Carr had proposed. I expect um, that if if what Carr wrote gets passed, um, there will be some heavy revisions, but it'll be a version of that. Um, another first-term councilwoman, though, named uh, Mirabai Nagel, uh, wrote to her colleagues on Friday, and as we reported in the story you mentioned, she is pushing uh, a, a new proposal that would basically scrap the ban on um, owning and and uh, and selling uh, these items. Uh, and by the way, I should note it doesn't just meant, it doesn't just include assault weapons. It would be bump stocks and magazines with uh, capacity over ten rounds as well. But would sort of scrap that particular approach and uh, replace it with one that says, you know, first of all, you have to be over 21 to uh, own or possess these items, and then you have to pass a certain training um, uh, or education course, like a hunter-shooter course, or get a concealed uh, carry uh, permit. So she claims that uh, she has support from other council members. There are nine Mm -hmm. of them, so she'd need herself and four others um, to gain a majority. And um, it's not clear how many she was talking about. When I asked her in follow-up, I, I said, how, how many people have your back on this? And she basically said, you know, we're, we're going to have to wait and see. But a We'll few wait and see until, until tomorrow, yeah, when, when this is brought up again. Thanks so much, Alex, for being with us. Yeah, appreciate you having me. Alex Burness covers the city council for the Boulder Daily Camera and joined us to talk about a proposal to ban so-called assault-style weapons from the city. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. On this day in 1975, at the tail end of the Vietnam War, there was a dramatic airlift. Thousands of people were evacuated out of Saigon as North Vietnamese troops approached the city. The people here were herded into groups. All they could take was hand luggage. Fifty at a time, they took off for the carriers waiting in the South China Sea. Among the evacuees, Denverite Diana Coy Nguyen's father and his family. Nguyen is a poet, and her new book, Ghost Of, is about the trauma of war and, many years later, the loss of her brother to suicide. And Diana, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Let's start with a poem that begins with the fall of Saigon. I'll have you read the first part of I Keep Getting Things Wrong. I Keep Getting Things Wrong. One. My father just out of his teens, stands on the rooftop of the embassy in Saigon, his birthplace. He gives his hand to his mother, and all around them a thousand hands reach up, not to wave. None of his siblings died, their bodies like a fine chain balled tight in a fist. They made it out alive. Why is he looking at me like this? Tell us how your father's family came to be a part of the evacuation before the fall of Saigon. Sure. So my grandfather worked for the American embassy, and on the 27th, the whole family arrived at the embassy, so just before the fall of Saigon, and they all left. And it's kind of 
like a miracle, right? Like the whole family. And there's about at least, I have 10 aunts and uncles. So it's quite a large family. And it's quite a unique story in that they were all together. And then they arrived in the U.S. in Pasadena, California mm. on May 2nd. And they began their new life there. And that's, you know, also kind of where my my life and my story begins as well. You, you sound in many ways surprised that your father, his family made it out. Many families didn't. I mean, my mother's family is a different story. My other grandfather, so my maternal grandfather, also worked for the embassy. And he was told on the 22nd, he was given 24 hours, and he was told by the embassy, bring whoever you want tomorrow, and you can leave. And my grandfather didn't realize that the war was ending, that the South was losing, and he had a lot of pride in the South. And so he came home and he had this big conversation with my mother's family, which is also about 11 siblings and my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And they had a business. They had a pharmacy in Saigon. And in the end, they decided to have the two youngest brothers leave because they were worried about the two brothers having to go to war and fight. So, you know, to protect the male members of the family. And in the end, it was just my grandfather and the youngest uncles and my eldest aunt who left. But as they were walking to the embassy, they realized that they had made this big mistake because they saw all of the, you know, the photos that we have seen of all the hands and the people trying to climb the gates, trying to get out. And it was too late for them to turn back to get the rest of the family. So, I mean, they flew out, and my mother and her grandmother and all her youngest siblings stayed behind, and they had a much different, difficult journey four years later of getting to America to reunite. Four years later. Four years later. Many attempts. The poem we opened with continues and connects to your family's life in the United States and to your brother's death. Yes. He took his own life in 2014. That is correct, in December. And some of your poetry literally takes the shape of Mm -hmm. your brother in photographs that he had cut himself out of. Tell tell me about that. Sure. Uh, About two years before he committed suicide, my parents woke up and when they walked down the halls, all the family portraits looked different. Um, There were now shards missing. And in the middle of the night, my brother had cut himself out meticulously with an X-Acto knife and then slipped all the photographs back into the frames. So it was quite disturbing for my parents. And actually, for a long time, these frames remained the same, even after his death. I mean, I'd go home and I'd have to walk the halls and see these remnants. And they held, they held a really disturbing resonance while he was alive and a different kind of resonance, you know, after he passed. And... It took a while for me to figure out I wanted to do something with them, especially in my grief in the mourning process as a way to kind of counteract this absence, this void, this loss, as a way to fill that that space back in, in a sense, to fill him back in. And on the pages of this new collection, Ghost Dove, you have poetry that is sort of squeezed into the shapes of those missing images. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in one of the poems, it's called Gyotaku, and it's a series throughout the book. And Gyotaku is this really ancient Japanese form of printing, of capturing fish, right? Like today we have, you know, fishermen who take big pictures with their marlins in Florida. You know, we see that or we see like the funny like fish that's mounted on a wall. But the Japanese used to apply sumo ink and then press the fish to uh, muslin or silk. Using the fish as a stamp. Yes, the fish as a stamp. And it was a way to keep a record of what you had caught, right? Um, And I mean, when you think about that, using of ink onto paper is no different than what a book is, right? It's a kind of printing. And that's my medium. I write poems, which are typeface on paper. And so 
I took this idea of leap recording, right, and making a new kind of record to fill in that void. And the other aspect, too, is my brother was cremated and my parents scattered his ashes into the Pacific Ocean. And I think about my brother, you know, being in the fish, being in the atmosphere, being in the water, and to think about all those things and then to kind of materialize him back onto the page. And there's this other as- interesting aspect. We refer, you know, here in a Western country as the fall of Saigon. And in the Vietnamese, especially those who left, they refer to it as it, it translates to the day we lost our country. But country is also the same word for water, mm. nuk, which is nuuk. And it's really fascinating to think about the day we lost, you know, water, also the day we lost our country. And I think about water and country and my brother as these particles, yeah, in oh, the ocean. The interconnectedness is so mm-hmm. profound. And so for that reason, uh, later today, we'll post uh, the poem Gyotaku mm-hmm. to CPR.org. Thanks for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much. She is Denver poet Diana Coy Wynn, and her new collection is called Ghost Of. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us at CPR News.